welcome to Act Three. And I'm glad to see that you're all still here. <laughs> That's good. Um, what I thought I would do um, with regard to Act One and Act Two very, very quickly is to um, is to show you where the Virginia plan was hatched and where the Connecticut compromise was hatched because a lot of events took place outside of chambers. They met for five hours a day in Independence Hall, but there's also some debate that takes place after. So that if, Jason, we could go back to the Constitutional Convention site, um, yeah, we've been through the Christie painting. If um, we go to the map, uh, that will be resources, I think. No, map of historic Philadelphia. Right, this, is, this is a famous map by Birch, an Englishman who did this in 1800. And Philadelphia, in those days, 1787, goes from Mulberry Street or Ray Street on the far north all the way down to to Cedar, Lombard, and but probably more like Spruce, you can see. And on the west side, it's, uh, it's, it's Ninth Street, and, uh, and, and, then the, and then the river. And 40,000 people lived there, and there were um, one, one, one tavern for every 400 people. And it was the Philadelphia water, which they couldn't drink. But the but part part of the problem, of course, is that today there's one lawyer for 287 people. <laughs> and I'd rather live in a drinking society than a litigious one. But uh, this map, if if if, if you use the legend on the right-hand side, and you want to um, to say, well, let the city tavern. What will happen is that the city tavern will light up and. There it is, the City Tavern, and you can click on it, and it will show. It, city Tavern is very well preserved, by the way. It, it's one of those, that's how it looked back in 1787, and if you scroll down, you'll see what it looks like today. It looks like that today. So that's, that's pretty close, and that's one of those, those, those um, attempts in Philadelphia during the 1970s and 1980s to restore, in terms of original intent, some of the buildings and some of the streets. There are other, um, 21st century in particular, which are deconstructionist rather than restorationist, and you get slabs of concrete and, and, and so how we remember and what we remember and what we forget and how we forget is an extremely important part of this, about this narrative. But if we were to go and say, I want to see Mrs. House's boarding house. So um, I think if, if you scroll down, we, we know where it is, but, if, but I'm trying to show you how to use this. So if we go to Mrs. House's, Mrs. House's boarding house, there it is, and it'll light up, and you go to Mrs. House's boarding house up, up in that point. That's, and we click on, <clears throat> that's where the Virginia plan was hatched. That's where the Virginia delegates stayed. Madison stayed there. You can see how, uh, uh, and in the 1950s, that was a toilet, a male toilet. 
And uh, I try, I've been tracking this, you see, in toilets and everything. And then this is, it shows you that Madison went and sort of, uh, was at this place, you see a little plaque on the corner. This is what it looks like now. It's a, sort of a big concrete slab where anybody could say whatever they want, where representative democracy has been replaced by dissenting democracy. And if you keep going, strolling down, um, strolling down right to the end, you will see this is what it is today. It's a stop um, on the one last one, I think. There's one last one. Yes, sorry. Welcome to the SEPTA public trans elevated to market Frankfurt line, trains to Frankfurt and Penn's Landing. That's how we have not remembered James Madison and the place that the Virginia plan was hatched. Um, so, but I, so I thought I'd show you that happy note that what we sometimes, what we remember and what we don't remember. The Connecticut Compromise was apparently behind the scenes, a lot of negotiating went on at the Indian Queen Tavern. And if we were to look for the Indian Queen Tavern, um, you will see, you'll have to go up. Yeah, yeah, you go, Indian Queen Tavern. Um, and you'll see it there. And it's not far away. And a number of the delegates stayed there if we, if it comes up, uh, <coughs> Gorham, Strong, Mason, Pierce, and Bassett all stayed at the Indian Queen Tavern. Those taverns in those days did multiple functions. And have we preserved that? No, I'll show you what it is if you scroll down. In contemporary Philadelphia, it is, that's what it looks like if you do a close-up of it. You can see it's a, it's a Fox TV studio. And so there, there's a couple of things that from Act One and Act Two which we haven't remembered, uh, and uh, but some we have remembered, like the cobblestone streets around Dock Street. We have we have remembered Market Street has been fairly well remembered. Um, so we we could spend a, a scene of Governor Morris's accident, which is one. This is Jason's has to be one of Jason's favorites. If you click on that, you can see. <laughs> Uh, I have gone to the, uh, to, to, he's got his right peg leg uh, cut off. He was in a carriage. And, um, hey, this, this is fit for the young. Uh, they know more about these things than I do. That, that he, was in, he was in a carriage with a married woman. And the, uh, the irate husband uh, followed and Morris jumped out and the carriage went over his leg. And the answer was, uh, your leg must come off. And John Jay wrote him and said, I think something else should come off. <laughs> and Morris responded, yes, I'll take my other leg off. You make it sound so good. <laughs> but that's, that's the spot in Philadelphia where it, where it all happened. And unfortunately, there is no plaque, but the cobblestone streets are, are there. But we could tell all kinds of stories with regard to the map of Philadelphia. And uh, I've recently, if, if you scroll down from that map, you can see there's a, um, he, yeah. Um, no, I, I, I want to scroll, I want to go below this map. So yeah, scroll on the outside, I think. Oh, yeah, there you go. And this one here, if you just uh, expand it if, by, by clicking on, yeah, there you go. You can see that there's, that th this is Market Street there. And number two is Independence Hall, where the delegates met. Uh, the tallest building is Christchurch. 
at there and their number of churches around in Philadelphia and that, that really surprised me from 1776 to, to 1800 the number of churches and it includes two Catholic churches that were, uh, were that were that were built the first the first church in the British Empire where Catholics could worship openly uh, and uh, was there so you get the, the Irish the Irish immigrants coming and then the Lutheran a lot of Lutheran churches there from from German immigrants coming so that uh, Philadelphia is not just the, the sort of the Quaker city but it is a city where 40,000 people a lot oh 10 percent 15 percent of the population are free blacks and working on the dockyards and domestic domestically but and the, and so these are the docks. So I, I thought I'd take a, you know, just five minutes to, to show you what else is on the website. Our, 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 our challenge today is to do the four-act drama, but I thought I would just show you some spots where, where the four-act drama is actually taking place. It's taking place in Independence Hall. It's also taking place in the taverns nearby. All right, let's go back to the boring text. And, and, uh, but if you, if you want to, since this show is really yours, if you want to return to, uh, to, to some visual presentations and what's, what's on the website for you to be able to use, uh, all you have to do is to, is to let me know and I will, I will go in the direction you want to, 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 to go. Uh, but to go back to the announced program, we are now about to enter Act Three, and these five people, one from Massachusetts, one from Pennsylvania, one from Virginia, um, one from Connecticut, and then A and other, who happens to be Rutledge from South Carolina, come up with a draft of the Constitution. And August the 6th, they present the 23 articles and what I want us to do is to take a look at Madison's notes. Now, Madison's coverage of the debates didn't become known as notes until after World War II. Um, <coughs> there's a quibble about that, and I'm involved with that quibble. But you don't have to get as mad as me and as, as idiotic about it. But these kinds of things matter to, to, you know, to me. So if we were to take a look at, at number seven, of this draft, you will see here that the powers of Congress are listed. And this is fascinating because the Articles of Confederation list explicitly what Congress can do without having a Bill of Rights. But you don't need a Bill of Rights because the powers of Congress are expressly stated. What a Bill of Rights does is to say what Congress can't do. But if it's expressly stated what Congress can do, it's already implied. That, that it's already there. You don't need a Bill of Rights. The Virginia plan says that Congress can do whatever the states are incompetent, regardless of whatever the states are incompetent, which almost calls for a Bill of Rights sometime down the line. Um, <clears throat> but what the Committee on, on Detail, as it's called, on August says, for the first time suggests some kind of middle ground between the Articles of Confederation 
which explicitly lists everything, and if it ain't there, you can't do it, and the Virginia plan, which doesn't list anything, which means you can do it, unless somehow we make a fuss about it. So here, for the first time, is presented to the, delegate, to the delegates present a listing of powers. And you can see the legislature shall have power to lay and collect taxes. That's first. And, and why is that? Because they were pretty much all in agreement that Congress should have more than the power of requisition in order to be able to, um, to, to fund its operation, to lay and collect taxes, duties, imports, and excises, to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states the famous interstate and, inter, in, uh, and international commerce clause. Those are two things. They, why do they come right away? And the answer is they come right away because everyone can agree on that, both sides. Now it starts to get interesting because, for example, Sherman would have said, give them those two powers and let's go home, right? Now it starts to come a debate. What else shall we give to Congress? to establish post offices, to fix standards of weights and measures, to borrow money. This is the creation of an interstate, an interstate free trade area, uh, to make rules concerning captures on land and water, to declare the law, to subdue rebellion, to make war. And, uh, um, you know, we have to stop and say, whoa, wait a minute, uh, to make war. And the word making is a very legislative word. You can see, for example, to, to make, and then it comes all the way down, and to make all laws that shall be necessary and proper. It's a proactive word, is, is, is to make. Um, of course, there's another meaning of the word make. Uh, if I knew you were coming out of made a cake, yeah, uh, or baked a cake, or make 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 a cake, that is somehow to follow the directions to, to make, which is not exactly proactive. It's just following a recipe. But this way, it's 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 a legislator to, to make laws. To it's a law-making branch to make war. Okay, but notice the famous necessary and proper clauses here. And, and um, so if someone were to ask you, where does that necessary and proper clause come? When did it happen? Why did it happen? The answer is, we decide to list the powers of Congress for the first time in the, in, in the convention. And we put necessary and proper in. And the question is, is that, is that the elastic clause? Does that make things stretch? Or what does that mean? But it, it, it provides some kind of loophole anyway, which needs to be fleshed out down the line. Uh, notice the general welfare and common defense clauses aren't there. General welfare and common defense clause get included in, uh, to, in the power to collect taxes, duties, imposts, exercise, finally in the Constitution, for, for the general welfare and common defense. And the reason for that is someone says at, at the convention, are you telling me that Congress can raise, has the power to lay and collect taxes for anything? And I said, no, 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 what we mean is just for the general welfare and common defense. So general welfare and common defense were inserted as a restraint on what Congress can do. Language is funny. Common defense and general welfare now are used as somehow a vehicle by means of which Congress can do anything. The welfare state, uh, uh, international police officer of the world, anything, because it's in the name of the general welfare and common defense. Well, 
The point I wanted to make is that, first of all, we now start listing the powers of Congress, which is very important. But once we start listing, how much can we imply? Under the articles, you can't imply a thing. It has to be exp expressly granted. Under the Virginia plan, you don't have to imply. Congress can do whatever it wants to do. Now we get into implication and interpretation. What is necessary? What is proper? What is this? What is that? So as you're listing powers, what if you forget one in it and do you have it there already? That introduces a, a, a new dimension to constitutional discourse. One dimension it immediately introduces is that once you start listing powers, in addition to have you left one out, um, you're now almost required to list non-powers as what Congress can't do. And so it should come as no surprise if we go down, you will see um, that Congress sh uh, just simply can't Declare treason. It has to be done under certain conditions. Uh, direct taxes shall be regulated by the whole number of white and other free citizens, etc., of every age, etc. No tax or duty shall be laid by the legislature on articles exported. No capitation. This is what Congress can't do. Um, and that shouldn't come as a surprise, having just stated what Congress can do. And, and this becomes the, 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 we are now about to enter the very uh, interesting things that Congress can't do. Um, by the way, no capitation tax shall be laid unless in proportion to the census herein, herein before directed to be taken. The 16th Amendment overturns that, of the Income Tax Amendment um, overturns that. Number six, no navigation actually be passed without the assent of two-thirds of the members present in each house. Um, that's one of those rare times where uh, a two-thirds vote, a supermajority vote is required. This is the Committee on Detail report. This is what I'm getting at. This is what the report came out with. And um, the United States shall guarantee, not guarantee any title of nobility. Number, number eight, uh, where, where was that one? Number, uh, uh, where, where, was the, where, where was that number dealing with the this, with this, with this slavery, Jason? Uh, wasn't it? No, no, I'm looking for what it can't do. We had this problem before, the Navigation Act, uh, the Hexel shall be supreme law of the land, number nine. Have we, have we, where, where is that, number nine? No, no, that's in the final constitution. Yeah, uh, let's see, keep going down. No, we're beyond it. Um, I thought it was number seven. Number seven and number eight. Roman numeral seven. Roman numeral seven. All right, so. Uh, seven, that's, all right, so where's, where's eight? Eight. No, lost it. Um, but what it, what, it, what it does, what it does say uh, is the following. That Congress shall not control the slave trade Ever. That is a slaveholder's document. Why did it need to say that? Because if, Cong if, if it didn't say that, then Congress, under the Interstate and International Commerce Clause, which had just been granted, could do that. 
so that in order to prohibit Congress from doing that, you have to have a specific provision. That is Pinckney Rutledge, South Carolina's contribution to this, that Congress never, ever, ever shall be able to, to um, control the slave trade or to place any, um, any restriction on that. If you just do, we, we've got to do, we've got to find this. We're, we're, let's do it one more time, up to, up to number seven, eight. Um, let's just say, up, oh, there it is. No tax or duty shall be laid by the legislature on articles exported from any state, nor on the migration or importation of such persons as the several states should think proper to admit, nor shall such migration or importation be prohibited. Um, that's the clause I'm looking for. Without that clause of restraint, Congress could prohibit the slave trade. Are you with me on that? Right? So this is one of the first, I would say, look, there are three slave clauses in the Constitution. This is the most important one. The first one is the three-fifths clause, which historians seem ad adamant becomes is, is the most important. There's a fixation by historians in the 21st century with regard to the three-fifths clause as if blacks are three-fifths of a person. If you were to, it, it, as if, the point is, who wanted blacks to be, slaves to be considered to be five-fifths of a person? And the answer is the Southerners. In other words, it had nothing to do with it. It had to do with representation and the question of wealth. It didn't have to do with whether a person is a person or three-fifths of a person. It has to do with the notion of, in America, with taxation comes the question of representation. In America, with that issue of representation comes taxation. Under the articles, representation is not a question. One state, one vote, okay? What is a question? Taxation. So how shall we tax each state in order to come up with a revenue? The answer is by wealth. How do you measure wealth? That's where the three-fifths clause originated under the Articles of Confederation as a mode of trying to proportion taxation among the, among the citizens. Representation was not a question. Here in the convention, taxation is not a question. Congress shall have power to tax. What is a question? Representation. Who or what shall be represented? The answer is basically people or states. That's Act 1 and Act 2. A certain ringer is put in. But how about wealth? That's what the South is interested in. Not just large state, small state. Not just North, but can wealth be represented in a system? After all, you go back to the Greeks, the wealthy were saying, if it weren't for us, we'd be poor. So we need representation as a part of our contribution. The bright, the intelligent would say, if it weren't for us, we'd be all dumb. But therefore, we need special representation. The wealthy have regularly argued that they need some kind of, because uh, they're going to be taxed, therefore they need representation. And, uh, and so the question is, how do you represent wealth? And that's the, sort of the twist in this battle. Sherman is not interested in representing wealth. He's interested in representing states. Madison is not particularly interested in representing wealth. He's interested in representing people. But there is this small faction that's interested in representing wealth. But there are two kinds of wealth. Old-fashioned wealth, aristocratic wealth, European wealth, feudalism wealth, and this other wealth, this new world wealth that comes in the form of slavery, wealth in people, not just wealth in property.
And that has an argument. Well, are slaves property or are they people? And the, the Constitution never uses the word property. It always uses the word persons, which raises all kinds of interesting questions. But the point that I want to make here is once you list what the powers of Congress are, you're almost in required to follow up with what the powers of Congress aren't. And the Southern, that, that, that shot across the bow that I talked about uh, where, where Pinckney sent, or drawing the line in the sand about South Carolina, here's where it's coming in. Congress shall never, look at the language, um, Congress shall, nor shall such migration or importation be prohibited. That means forever and ever, amen. That's what I, that, now that would be a slaveholder's document. Why? Both sides of the argument understood that the way to end slavery or keep slavery is to end the slave trade or keep the slave trade. Now we might look upon that as somehow backward looking or in, in, an, in an inadequate understanding. But the, but, the, but the idea was if you can cut the slave trade off of, at, at its source, then you have, if I may use the war imagery, you've cut up, you've, you've, you've put a pincer movement, you've contained it within, within a certain boundary. At this very same time in middle of July, the Northwest Ordinance is passed, which is an ordinance to govern the new territory uh, that, that, this is remarkable, by the way, <clears throat> that most countries in most centuries fight over land. Gibraltar? <laughs> Catalina Island? Uh, we, we, we fight over the most, Kuwait? Right? We, we, we do all these kinds of strange things. We fight over land. But what is amazing about the American narrative is that each of these states gave up their land or their claims to the hinterland, and it created this Northwest Territory, which became temporarily federal territory to become states upon application. So that there was clearly an understanding of an expansion to the Northwest. Well, one of the features of this Northwest is that slavery shall be um, prohibited in the Northwest. So if you look at it like this, if you could prohibit slave trade coming in, over the Atlantic, and you can prohibit the spread of slavery in the Northwest, you've got a pincer movement, or shall we say, containment. You haven't ended it, but you've contained it. Maybe they should have done more, but to say that they did nothing and to perpetuate slavery, it seems to me is, not only is it anti-Lincolnian, it is uh, inaccurate. And, and the interesting thing is Lincoln did not establish his case against slavery by blaming the framers. Uh, Garrison did, um, but Lincoln didn't, and he thought that uh, that something really seriously changed in the 1840s and 1850s, and I agree with him. Something seriously changed, and what changed was instead of slavery being an embarrassment or a temporary affair while this generation, which was addicted, died off, it became a positive good. <laughs> in the 1840s, 1850s, where you start getting Calhoun and Fitzhugh writing that slavery is good for the slave. And it's, it's, it, it, it is no accident, as far as I'm concerned, that in the 1840s, you also get simultaneously the rise of a very, very um, 
far-reaching critique of capitalism. This is the time that Dickens writes in Europe about the suffering uh, uh, workers. This is the time of Marx's Communist Manifesto and the alienation of the working class, the condition of Engels and the condition of the working class and poor. In other words, a strange alliance emerges between the Southern secessionists and the left-wing Marxists. Europe, and the idea is that capitalism is bad, free, free labor is bad, commerce is bad, and that uh, standing on one's own is a bad thing, that you're worse off by standing on your own. And so there's this strange, strange combination, but that's not the first time strange combinations have taken place in history. But I think Lincoln is correct. You won't find that at the American founding, but you will find it, but it comes after the founding. Um, <clears throat> but this, if this stood, let me, let, let me give the, the, uh, the, those, those scholars who claim that the Constitution is a slaveholder's document, that, let me give them some credit. And the credit would be if this proposition in the Committee on Detail report, with the help of Rutledge after the Pinckney shot across the bow, if this had stayed, it would have been a slaveholder's document. So what is of great interest to me is what happens to this provision? Uh, we could spend an awful lot of time, but we're not going to. But, but let, let me say that, that this is August the 6th when this document is presented. And so what do the framers do? They start at the beginning and they work their way through, bit by bit by bit. And they get to the powers of Congress about August the 14th, August the 15th, and on August the 17th, they have a discussion of what to make war is. We can talk about that, but I'm just gonna go dot, dot, dot for the moment and just simply summarize it, which is to make war is eliminated and to declare war is substituted. And the argument ever since is, well, where did to make war go? Blessings of liberty upon you, Mr. Antony. <laughs> and uh, uh, I'm glad to see safe driving and, 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 and that you're here. And we're, uh, we're plowing our way through the, the, the drama. Uh, and now I've forgotten where I was. Your, your presence is... Make war. Right, so, so the, the debate was, um, so make war is replaced by declare war. So where did make go? Um, the answer by most scholars today is it went to the president. So that Congress declares war, the president makes war. And to which I then ask, show me, where does, where, if you take a look at the presidential article, article two, where does it say make war? The answer is it doesn't. So therefore you have to imply. That is correct. I have no problem with implications. You can't write everything down and be clear. The answer is commander in chief. Well, so, but the biggest proponent, Alexander Hamilton, argued that commander in chief meant making war in the sense of directing war, not introducing war. And you might say, well, what did Alexander Hamilton have to say on, on the 17th when they debated this? The answer was, he wasn't there. <laughs> Wouldn't it have been loverly had he been there? We could have settled a whole bunch of, 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 of implications by doing that. The best that I can come up with is the, is the argument in which Madison supported. To make war is a legislative act. 
but in a democratic constitutional republic, to make war implies being proactive. And the only just war is a war of defense. And a republic, to be named itself a republic, cannot be actively going out and seeking war. A just war is a war of self-defense. So make was dropped and declare put instead as a way of emphasizing that understanding of a just war. Where did make go? Well, make capital M disappeared. Make small m, namely I can direct war, went to the president. Well, what happens if there are sudden, sudden invasions? That's just war. That is, if, you're, if you are invaded and you can't get Congress together. Uh, so, so that is something that is very, very interesting that, is, that has changed over the years uh, in constitutional debates. And, uh, and one of the arguments is that if you take a look at the uh, Constitution, Article 1 seems to say the, power, the legislative powers here invested in, uh, in, in the legislature, such and such, whereas if in the executive it says all executive powers invested, invested, so that somehow the legislative power is restrained, but the executive power is not restrained. Well, the reason why the word herein granted is in the legislative branch, because the powers which are not here belong to the states. You don't need to say that with the executive because there's no such thing as the powers not granted belong to the governors. So, I mean, that's a twist. But it, it, um, there's a, some very interesting arguments over this. And I, I, um, I, I, to me, it really doesn't matter whether it's a Democrat or a, or a Republican. And it seems to shift the ground whether, they, whether you're your person in power as a Democrat or Republican as to what you, what you land up with. But I'm a Democratic Republican. I'm, uh, I, I am a, a <laughs> I'm, I try to be a, a, an American, a constitutionalist, and it seems to me that in the Democratic Republic, unless you're wanting to repel sudden invasion and you just can't get together to talk about it, you gotta keep, even for prudential reasons, you need the uh, um, support. But that's, but that's the kind of debate they had over virtually everything that the committee on detail came up with stood. There are two spots where the committee on detail was stopped and something significant changed. One is make war became declare war. That is significant. The question, of course, is what is its significance and what does it hold for us today? The other significant change was the, um, the, the where it said that uh, Congress shall never prohibit the migration or importation of such persons, which means African slaves, into the country. And if we move uh, to the, the August the 21st, the 22nd, the 23rd, etc., if we move to that portion, Jason, uh, of, of Act 3, um, you, you will, we will see um, August the 20th, see to the slavery question, the creation of the judiciary, report of the Committee of 11, Article 7, slavery, discussion, Committee of 11 reports on slavery, the slavery question. So all in that, they're talking about slavery, which means that if I were to choose one issue in Act 3, which receives... The, the most attention in terms of, now wait a minute, 
are we sure we want to go down this route? It's the slavery question. And what is the argument? Much mischief can be done. Like blah, 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 blah. How can you have a slave society and a commercial society? How can, that, how, how can you possibly have that? And so a committee is created, the Committee on the, of Eleven, as it's called, and Madison gets selected. These selections of these committees is, is absolutely fascinating. In a minute, I'll just show you. We'll, we'll go to the, the committee chart and show, show, show about this. Uh, but Madison gets himself on this committee. And what happens is that the committee comes back and says, we propose changing Congress shall never prohibit the slave trade to Congress shall not prohibit the slave trade until 1800. Now, what was about, what, what's big about 1800? The answer is that it's a new century. It's a new, to use Lincoln's phrase, it's a new birth of freedom. It's a new century. You might argue that you cannot deal, do without slavery. You cannot do without your, uh, your gas-guzzling car. You cannot do without such and such and such and such. But that should not imply the next generation, you, uh, that we can start off with the next generation being free of, of the, say, it, it should not be an inherited um, it should not just pass on naturally because it's been done in the past. So in 1800, you start a new century. By the way, that was originally the argument over the Northwest Territories, that effective 1800, there shall be no slavery in Northwest Territory. What the Southern delegates who were prepared to do, by the way, some delegates leave Philadelphia and go to New York so the Congress there can now start meeting. And one of the first things it does is to pass the Northwest Ordinance. And, 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 and the deal becomes, I'll tell you what, we'll say that Congress, that there'll be no slavery in, in the Northwest Territories effective this very minute in exchange for the Fugitive Slave Clause. Bam. That becomes a deal. Here, the Fugitive Slave Clause hasn't entered as part of the, quote, discussion. What has entered is that never... And what, and what we end up with is uh, Madison and friends proposing 1800. Pinckney responds, how about 1808? <laughs> and that is one of the biggest surprises that I've, that I've made because it, it indicates to me that Pinckney may have been playing a shell game and holding, uh, holding a weak hand all the time, because one would say, why don't you just tell Pinckney to go away? Um, why, why, why did, see, one of the interesting questions, how come, not a, not a racial minority, not a religion, how come a numerical minority in America regularly have some clout over the majority? I managed to somehow, oh, we have to be as one, we have to be, we have to move together or not move at all. And so Pinckney, Pinckney was the one who said never. They come back with 1800, and he goes from never to 1808. So they have a vote on 1800 versus 1808. And 1808 passes. Um, we'd have to go down past August 25th. Uh, let's see. 
Yeah, agreed, 740 changed from 1800 to 1808. New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, and Virginia voting against. So Virginia, the largest slaveholding state, votes against. They want 1800. Think about this. You got, here's your choice. Never. 1800. 1808. There are seven who say yes, four who say no. When I first went through this, I thought the four who said no wanted never. To my great surprise, the four who said no wanted 1800. If you read historians today, the implication you will get is it's between 1808 and Congress never changing this. The idea of 1800 being the, being the alternative position is not mentioned, or very rarely mentioned. And this clause is used as to enshrine. The only way it's enshrined, if we were to just, we will go to your, your Article 1, Section 9, you know, in, in, a, in a second. The only way it's enshrined is, is in, in the final document it says it can't be altered with all kinds of verbal parachutes. It, it, it can't be altered until, eight, until, 18, until 1808 has come. As soon as 1808 comes, in fact, in 1807, it's, it's changed. So that effective January the 1st, 1808, bam, the slave trade is, is, is ended. So you, there, are two, there are two ways to look at this. It's a slaveholder's document, or it's a document which puts slavery in the course of ultimate extinction. Um, Lincoln chose the ultimate extinction. I think the evidence uh, supports Lincoln's interpretation rather than, uh, and it depends on how you read history. You read history backwards or you read history forwards. Um, how do, uh, uh, and I like to read history forwards rather than reading history backwards. Uh, it's laying a foundation. Um, we, went, we could go on, but the remainder of August is essentially taken up with this committee of, of, of detail. And what I would like to do in the few minutes that we have left is to, uh, is, is, is to open up to the floor and answer whatever questions you have with regard to Act, Act 3. Because when Act 3 ends and the curtain drops, we've got the following. The Connecticut Compromise isn't challenged. We've got the states being represented and doing the electing in the Senate. We have the people doing the electing uh, and being represented in the House. We have the powers of Congress listed, but make war has become declare war. We have the powers of Congress restricted, but we no longer have Congresses restricted from never doing the slave trade until 1808. Um, and the, the, the curtain falls, and Act 4 is about to begin, and we wonder, well, what yet has to be done? And the answer is a committee called a Brearley Committee, after Mr. Brearley, is created. Uh, it has the, the less delicate title, Leftovers. So this committee deals with whatever's left over. And the most important thing about what is left over is the presidency. And then they send the final uh, document that they've talked about, et cetera, to a committee on style, 
which is to put stylistic touches to this document, and not just when you when you have the final word, you can change the language, etc. And that occurs in Act Four, which we will get to momentarily. But um, let, let's spend the remainder of our time talking about the textual content of Act Three or anything visual with regard to the paintings or the tables. Oh, I don't know what I wanted to do before. Could, could we just show the table a moment, please, that the, the committee assignments? This, this really is for, um, for, for public policy wonks who really want to get into, in, into detail. If we look at committee assignment chart, what I've done here is to show you, keep going. There you go, you're going great, great. Act three and four, yep. yep. That's just words. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what it has is uh, the number of committees go from A to L. Here are all the people, and here are the committees they're on. And you can track and see who gets on which committee and who's, and, and, and some committees are one from each state, and there are these handful of committees in which you have five members. And who are those five members? Because they have a very special position on, on it. And I've, I've told you that the committee on detail had five people and, and, and who those five people were. Um, and we will see who gets on the committee on style. But you can track people through, through this. Yes? On the three-fifths issue, uh, concept, um, if, if, if we think of that as, as a metric for, for measuring wealth and not representation, if I, if I follow that correctly. Why would you, why would, why would they only include the one type of property of slaves? Why wouldn't, why wouldn't how much land one owns or how much, or what, how many head of cattle be, be included if it were as components of wealth? Why just one component? Oh, that's, that's a very good question. For, for example, Elbridge Jerry from Massachusetts did raise the question if you're going to include slaves that are treated as cattle in the South, why don't you treat horses in the North? Isn't it? I mean, he raised it as a, I mean, he, he wasn't, I mean, certain historians have read that as saying that Jerry understood slaves to be like horses. I mean, he, he, that's not what he meant. He wanted to say exactly what you were getting at. I mean, why would you count one species of property and not another species of property? And the answer is because of this peculiar institution in the South. What you're having is a clash, it seems to me, between a new commercial society, which is emerging, and an old feudalistic society, which is still holding on. And so that's the ambiguity between whether slaves are people or whether slaves are property. And, um, and that is the only reason I can see. I, I don't think that. Okay, the leading framers of both sides, what well, I would say, Madison and Sherman, weren't interested in particularly representing wealth. The issue in America was whether you represent people or you represent states. It is the Southerners who said wealth is power, wealth needs to be represented. And Gouverneur Morris and, Jer and Jerry from the North would say, well, if that's the case, why don't we represent the landed interest in the North? 
And of course, the South weren't interested in that. They were interested in representing a peculiar form of wealth, which is slave wealth. Well, then, shall, sl shall, is, shall slaves be treated as property or people? Well, the part of the problem is there were 600,000 African Americans in, in the United States, and 60,000 of them were free, which means that they were clearly by all definitions, persons. So the most you could say was nine-tenths of African-Americans, by being not free, weren't persons. They were, 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 were property. And then you have to look, well, can you become a person? And the answer is, well, you have to go to each state to figure that out. Well, why can't they be a national law? And the answer is because the Articles of Confederation didn't give the, didn't give the nation any control over that issue. All right, so should the nation have some control over that issue? This is really one of the first times that, that, that the issue arises. So, but your point is well taken. Why not, in, therefore, include all, prop, all, all wealth? And I think the answer, in the end, is wealth is not, wealth is not. That's, that's, that ultimately is the failure of the Beard thesis, that wealth is not directly constitutionally represented in the Constitution, other than indirectly through the three-fifths clause in, 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 in slavery. And um, am I answering your question? This is a very complicated issue in terms of, in, in terms of back and forth. I mean, the, originally, the three-fifths clause was introduced as, as you, all you have to do is look at, the, at June the 11th and see the dynamics. When Sherman says, it seems like we're going in favor of representing the people in both branches. How about representing the states, for goodness sake, in one branch? What happens? Butler, South Carolina. Oh, I thought wealth should be represented. Well, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? See, and if wealth is to be represented, that's neither representing states, per, qua states, nor representing people, qua people. It's putting a twist in the argument. And so the three-fifths clause comes as a way of dealing with that twist. And if you're, if you're Madison, in fact, one of, one of Madison's solutions is, why don't we, all right, if you want to, um, only count free people. I mean, free, in a sense, only free people should be counted because only free people can vote. And free people have the opportunity to participate. I mean, that's what, if you go back in the history of slavery, slaves didn't participate. That's, what they were, that's why they were slaves. So they didn't participate. So Madison's solution for this is, why don't we just have free people being represented in the House, and then in the Senate, represent slaves as if they were free. That is, include five-fifths in the Senate. So therefore... When, free, when, when slavery ends, you don't have a problem with the three-fifths clause anymore. And it has absolutely fascinated me how historians, and I won't mention names because this is on tape at the moment, and I don't, don't really want to engage in a, in a discussion on, or name names when they're not here to defend themselves, etc. Uh, I always think if you're going to name, do something like that, you should name them and presume that they're in the room they can answer you. So I just say there are historians who... who who would argue that the three-fifths clause put America on the road to perpetual slavery, and it took a civil war to end it.
I would say far more important because you can amend the three-fifths clause. What is really important is if you take a look at Article 5, which is the amendment clause, what's not capable of being amended, amended? That tells you what is absolutely critical. There are two features of Article 5 in the Constitution that cannot be amended. One, the slave trade, 1808, but after that it can be, right? But not until 1808. And the other one, from Sherman, who says, no state can be deprived of its equal representation in the Senate without its own consent, ever. So those are, the, those, those are two features, not the three-fifths clause. That could be changed like that. Ma'am. Could you please talk about, go back and talk about um, what changed in 1840 and that coalition that was going to be European Marxism? Well, I, I don't know that a full-fledged, full uh, um, shall we say, deliberate coalition was solved, was, was forged. But, but, I mean, it's probably more than coincidental that it had very similar critiques. It, in the 1840s, you get the... You, in particular, in the 1840s, you get the collapse of what we might simply call God-given rights or natural rights. That there's something inherent in the human being that is God-given or you don't, you don't inherit, but is inherent. And you get the birth of Darwinism and survival of the fittest and a certain evolutionary understanding of, of, of activity. And so you get a, a, you get a sort of a divide occurring between the abolitionists who are very much in favor of, um, of certain kind of natural rights, God-given rights, and you get the evolutionists who see life as far more um, um, e sort of evolving. And for Marx, the, the ultimate victory of the proletariat over the capitalists is predictable and inevitable for the sub and, and therefore and why because capitalism is not just inefficient it's rotten the condition of human beings is rotten under the commercial society the southerners had a very similar position that the African-Americans are much better off in slavery in the South than they were living in tenement buildings in Chicago or New York or fending for themselves. And that's always been the story, says the Southerners, and that this notion to be free and to be insecure and to be living in a squalor and segregation, et cetera, is, is, is I mean, how can you possibly choose that over against a comfortable existence where you're, you're, which is guaranteed. So, I mean, that was a similarity in the idea that somehow one wants to be free and that I'll take my chances, uh, my, my God-given chances is, 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 um, is uh, particularly if God is dead. Uh, that will take us a long time to do. But, uh, we, we could pick that up. No, 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 I'm not sorry at all. I just wish that uh, we had had, m had more time to do it. No, you know, you know that it, 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 life is funny. It, it really is funny because there's a group of people who suggest that ideas have consequences. And then there's another group of people who think that consequences have ideas. 
that ideas are simply rationalizations for something that already took place. And it's a very complicated mixture in life. Um, the low ground, totally low ground, is that consequences have ideas. The completely high ground is that ideas have consequences. And I think life is somewhere in between. But I don't think you could have the abolitionist movement without an idea of abolition. However, economically, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and part of the problem with, um, if, if you take a look at the cornerstone speech by, by Vice President Stevens in the Confederacy, uh, he says that the, so up till this moment, America has been, ba has been grounded on a self-evident lie that all men are created equal. Our Southern Confederacy is based on a self-evident truth. That the, that the lowest, meanest white person is better than the highest, sweetest black person. Now, not even the Southerners from South Carolina in the convention say that. They would say, if slavery is wrong, the whole world has been wrong. Why are you making an issue out of this right now? We have other things to think of. You're pushing something, you darn Yankees. So uh, there is no doubt. There's no doubt. I will end on this note. There, there is no doubt in my mind that something happened in the 1820s, 1830s, 1840s. All you have to do is look at wills. I've read a number of wills from the 1790s where, quote, the master, unquote, and mistress have decided to emancipate their former slaves. And, and you have to pass emancipation laws, you have to do all kinds of little things. It depends on which state you're in as to what hurdle you have to pass. But as long as, basically, as long as the, this, this is difficult, the slave can read and write such and such and have a plot of land to be able to grow food on and not become a ward of the state, then emancipation will go through if, if, that's, if that's what you wish. I have read wills that emancipate only for the children to contest the will and the grandchildren to contest the will. On what grounds? The will says... Slave Ben, Jack, Jane, Jill shall be free. But, that's, but in the meantime, between the writing of the will and the death of the person, Peter, Catherine have been born and are not mentioned in the will. So therefore, Peter and Catherine are not free. And you have to go, you go in front of a judge, and the judge interprets and says, well, if you start listing... How come these two weren't done? And the answer, a common sense answer is, how many of us know precisely the day we're going to die? <laughs> do you redo your will every day? No. You redo your will. If you do redo your will, you do your will maybe once every five years, if that. So something happens. Put it this way. The next generation is not necessarily as good as us. Yes. Hers were not. No. And of course they were all intermarried, intermarried. Becomes messy. 
not until he, and that has nothing to do with the framers as much as it has to do with messy marriage laws. I mean, when you look at the Christie painting and there are no women in there, the answer is, the, it's not that the framers were sexist, but what do you do with marriage laws? I mean, you take a look at Dred Scott and his wife. Uh, Mrs. Scott had, Harriet, had, 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 a, had a potentiality to become free, right? But because she's married to Dred Scott, she now takes on the character of her husband and therefore is not, no longer considered to be potentially free. Because the marriage, because the, the birth laws in those days, if it depends on whether your mother is free or not. If your mother is free, you are free. So if you're the if you're the offspring of a white mother and a black slave, you're free, not the other way around. So you've got a heck of a lot of marriage laws birth laws to deal with, and to burden the framers who are trying to write a government of limited character with, 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 with that kind of, uh, 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 I, mean, I, I just don't, I mean, is our dislike for the, for the framers so intense? One last question, because I, wanted to have a, I want us to have a last session, too. Uh, requires a lot of speculation, but if the, the Constitution does not come about and the country reside, remains on the articles. What happens to slavery over time? Well, your guess is as good as mine, but I think that what happens over time is that is that um, you get you get a Southern Confederacy growing, and you get a Northern Confederacy growing, and you've got the issue of slavery being able to be manipulated by the Europeans. And remember this: the Spanish did not give up slavery until the 1860s. There were six million Africans uh, uh, in, in the New World. Uh, no, sorry, 11 million Africans in the New World, six million of them in Brazil. And the Portuguese did not give up slavery until way late. The first two to give up slavery were the British and the American. The two, the two nations that received the greatest criticism of slavery is the British and the Americans. So what I think would have happened is that you, you would have not had a, 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 a you would not have had a, an evening reasonably happy ending. Cuba in the 1860s still had slavery. Right off the coast, you think Cuba with a missile crisis is difficult? Imagine slaves off the, off, off, off the coast, and you and you engaged in illicit trade. Anyway, right, let's take a five-minute break and come back. This has been fascinating, but in order to try to continue the idea of a four-act drama rather than a three-and-a-third drama, uh, let's take a five-minute break. Thank you.